Welcome to the Love and Context Podcast, engaging in unscripted conversations with your hosts, Ben and Spencer. Whether you're tuning in from your car, your office, your home, or anywhere in between, we are so happy to have you join us today. Our mission is simple, to explore the Bible through a powerful lens of love. Together, we'll uncover fresh insights and gain deeper understandings of how we can love God and love the people in our everyday lives. So buckle up and join us on this spiritual journey as we discover timeless wisdom that is just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome to the Love and Context podcast. I'm Spencer, not Ben. I'm Ben and I'm not Spencer. Yeah. Glad you're listening with us today. We are going to be continuing through the book of numbers. Y'all excited? Uh, I know I am. Ben always makes fun of me because he's like, your excited voice doesn't sound that excited. I'm like, it does not. You're right. But I am excited. I mean, you're basically like, oh, I'm so excited about what's coming up. I can hardly contain my. I am excited. I am. So if you haven't read numbers seven through 10, pause the podcast, go do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is one of the last sections that we're going to be talking through before we kind of get into, like I've told you in coming up, we said buckle up. There's some hard stories in here. This is one of the last sections that we have before we start getting into hard, some hard stories. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So in 7 through 10, by the way, if you haven't pod, podcast and gone and read that, it's time to do that. It is. We haven't said this in a while, but there's newfangled technology. You can pause a podcast and go read the Bible first and then come back here. You can. And I also, in our show notes, I linked going over to the Bible Project. I think if you watch the read scripture from the Bible Project with the whole book of numbers, it's actually going to be really helpful too to get the mm-hmm. whole context of the book. Yeah. All right. So when the chapter seven starts up and it says that they have opened up the tabernacle, Mm -hmm. right? And so then the people are coming and they're bringing offerings at the tabernacle and they're bringing these gifts or bringing offerings of worship to dedicate to the temple and to the altar, right? Yep. Because it's being used at the beginning. There's two words that show up here repeatedly that I think is worth noting because they're words that are very familiar to us in our modern context. The first word is this word Massah. It's a verb which means to anoint. Um, mm-hmm. The definition of this word is to smear or spread across. Now, the first place that word shows up in scripture is actually in Genesis thirty-one thirteen, where God says he's the God of Bethel, where Jacob poured or smeared oil on the stone marker or anointed this stone marker. Remember, this is the stone that he laid his head on yeah. to sleep because apparently that's what you do in the desert. Yeah. Real comfy pillows there. Yeah. You know those, those commercials for like the pillow cube? Uh-huh. It was not as comfortable as a pillow cube. Not a sponsor. How do you know? Yeah, I'm just <laughs> assuming. Somebody out there, probably somebody who listens to this uses a pillow cube. You probably. go ahead and just send us a message and you let you go get a rock and tell us if the rock or the pillow cube is more comfortable. Mm. It's probably a rock. Anyways, there's this idea. It actually comes from spread across. So the idea behind this idea of anointing, it actually plays into our second word. Anointing by implication is to consecrate or to separate out. In other words, you are marking something that is going to be separated for something, Mm -hmm. right? So kodas, which is also a verb, means to consecrate, sanctify, dedicate, to make holy, set apart for something. Now, these two words show up repeatedly as anointing and consecrating throughout this section of scripture. Kodas, the first place that it shows up in scripture is in the creation narrative where God declares the seventh day holy. He consecrates it. He sanctifies it. He dedicates it. He makes it holy. Yes. 
Now, we've talked about holy quite a few times, and I really think it's one of those words that I think is wildly misunderstood. So in the modern context, like Spencer, what are you deal with a lot of youth? Yeah, so a lot of youth, when they hear the word holy, what is the representation of what this word means? Perfect, unattainable, can't happen. Solemn. Yeah. Right. Like boring. Boring. Is another way that I've heard it described by teen by teenagers. Right. It's really just that idea of like, well, you're talking about perfection and I'm not going to obtain that because right. there's uh, no way that's going to happen, especially in context of teenagers where so many of them are coming from broken homes and poor right. home lives nowadays. Right. Well, and the, and the whole thing with being holy, if, if you actually ascribe it to being like solemn or revered, I think those things can be encompassing, mm-hmm. but I would be very cautious with saying that God's boring, you know, because God is not boring. He's dynamic and super interesting and does way cooler stuff than we do. Yeah. I mean, he literally speaks universes into existence. That's a pretty cool uh-huh. thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. He split an ocean into two oceans so that they could walk across dry land. Yeah. They, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting because so this idea of holy, we want to really reframe this as set apart or different than everything else. So mm-hmm. they're setting apart. Uh, the two verbs is you're anointing something. In other words, you are marking it. And that's yeah. a verb. It's something that you're marking. And then you have this kodas, this verb, which means to set apart. You're actually moving it from where it is and setting it apart from everything else. Yeah. That whole set apart notion ties into the New Testament when people who are starting to follow Jesus after his life, death, and resurrection, they are doing things that set them apart from the culture of the day. Right. They're they're actually echoing what God was establishing in Leviticus mm-hmm. with his people of saying, hey, you're going to live in a way that's countercultural. You're not going to, like in Leviticus, you're not going to sacrifice your children. Right. You're not going to carve into your arms as a form of worship. Yeah. And then you fast forward to the Roman era, they're like you're not going to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar before trade. Yeah. It's the same It's the same concept that's happening in the New Testament. It's just instead of the sacrificial system being in place, Christ had fulfilled all of Torah because he was Torah made flesh. Right, right. In other words, he gives the example of how to actually walk that out in communion with God. Yep, exactly. We're, we've talked about it and we brushed on it briefly, but this idea that Jesus came to fulfill and then do away with the law is not accurate. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a different call for Jews and Gentiles, right? We, there's that whole thing we talked about from uh-huh. Galatians, this works of the law. And so there's different requirements on how we're supposed to put the kingdom on display. Yeah. But how you put the kingdom on display is how you're holy. How are you different than everybody else around you? Which I think is a very good challenge for Gentiles, right? Yeah. Like, so the Jews had a very specific way. If you are a practicing Jew today that follows Jesus, you have a very practical way. You don't wear blended fabrics. You yeah. wear tassels on the end of your robe. You observe uh, Shabbat on a religious, in a religious way. Like, you have very tangible ways you put God on display. And then you have some non-tangible ways, of course, by the way that you love people and all those different things, too. But Gentiles, we don't necessarily have these tangible ways. So what are the actual tangible ways that we put God on display that we show that we trust this story? Yeah. Right? You, and you can actually find that in the end of Romans chapter three. Yeah. Uh, because Romans chapter three talks about God's faithfulness, uh, Christ's punishment. And you get to the end of Romans three, and this is just a couple of verses. It says, after all, is God the God of Jews only? Isn't he the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God who makes people right with himself by faith, whether that's Jew or Gentile. Well, then, if we emphasize faith, does that mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Right. Well, and, and, and so 
we don't want to get, we've talked about that a little bit when we were doing Leviticus, so we don't want to get too off the rails, mm-hmm. but like understand being holy and we were going to keep coming back to this because I think we're yeah. probably going to spend some time going through either Romans or Galatians to yeah. talk about more in depth after we're done with our Torah yeah. series. So both of these words that show up, anointing and consecrating, they're both words of action. In other words, they're words that modify the noun. That's how language works, right? Both anointing and consecrations are words of action, meaning they aren't the thing. They are what is done with the thing. Yes. Now, the reason I point that out is because in uh, modern understanding, we, we're like anoint and consecrate. We talk about all these things. But what are you anointing and consecrating, right? Yeah. So it's not just you anoint and consecrate. You actually, there is, they're meant to modify the noun, which is the person, place, thing, or idea, right? Uh, so then in this section, they actually go into what are they consecrating, what are they anointing? And it lists all the tribes, all these leaders, and all these other people that brought gifts of worship and adoration and what they were, what they actually brought to God mm-hmm. in worship and adoration. And there's a couple of different offerings mentioned here in this chapter, and we talked about a few of these. Uh, yeah. There's the burnt offering. Yeah, we did talk about a few of these. burnt offering, if you remember Leviticus, this is an act of worship, committing to follow after God and his righteousness. Now, we just got to reiterate a little bit when we're talking offerings, we're not just talking about sin offering, right? Like that's often what we hear about in the church context today is like, oh, well, there was offer, there were sacrifices just so that forgiveness of sin. I was like, no, there's actually multiple types of offerings for multiple yeah. different applications. The vast majority were not actually sin related. Yeah, they were. There's actually only one that really, really is tying directly yeah, to that. Yeah, ties directly to sin. So burnt offering is the first one that's mentioned here, which is an act of worship, right? It's saying, hey, I am going to strive after God to be with God, be in relationship with God and strive after his righteousness. And on a very practical sense, you think about like, okay, well, why is that connecting you to the righteousness of God? Okay, when you burn something, it uh-huh. rises up. And in ancient understanding, where is God? He's above you, Yep. right? He's in the heavens. Yeah. Another one that's mentioned that is in this section of scripture and numbers is the fellowship or the peace offering and its connection between humanity and God, right? Yeah. This particular offering usually involves a meal of a sort, mm-hmm. either eaten with another person or in the presence of God. Yeah. Right. This has come up a number of times. This was in Leviticus 10. This was in, or sorry, I think it was Leviticus 9 where they were eating before Aaron was good to go into the temple, right? Yeah. And then the last one is one that is called a sin offering as this is an offering having to do with ritualistic purity, that would have made sense as the tabernacle has just been completed and they're preparing to enact use for it. They're enacting ritual purification. When you're a doctor, you should wash your hands before you actually operate, right? At least I hope they would. (laughs) So do I. Before you go and do that, we're not saying you're disease-ridden, but at the same time, you should probably wash your hands before you stick your hands in someone's guts. Yeah. Right? Right. This is ritualistic purity, and it's not necessarily that they're full of sin, but this is to reconnect them with the nature of God. That's the whole thing about the sin offering. Now, if you are struggling a little bit with this and you're just joining us for the first time, go back to our Levitical episode about the sacrificial system. So in the middle of all of this, at the tail end of these offerings, there's this really cool thing that happens in chapter 7 in verse 89. And yes, it goes all the way to 89. We had this Uh discussion. Uh That's a lot of verses in one chapter. It says, When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony. From between the two cherubim, he spoke to him in that way. Okay. So first off, let's just talk about how cool that is. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I've had conversations with people about nowadays is they say, well, God doesn't speak audibly. Okay. Well, right here in the Bible, he definitely does. He does. He still does. 
And yeah, and I'd say that he doesn't always speak audibly. But nor does he always speak audibly in scripture. Nor does he always speak audibly in scripture, exactly. But there are points in scripture where it's very clear that God spoke audibly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I don't believe that his nature changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the modern day. And if you believe that, I feel like you might be arguing with scripture itself. Right? You, you would be arguing with scripture itself. I'm not even going to say that you might be. You might be. <laughs> <laughs> So this is really cool. I want to talk about some rabbinic conversation that actually happens in Torah around this. Okay. So Torah itself, that's the first five books of the Bible. The rabbis are going to talk about Torah in a lot of different ways. They're going to call it the bread of life, the, uh, the tree of life, a lot of imagery that connects it back to the garden of Eden. So I want to talk about what's actually happening here really quickly in this, in this statement, uh, this 789. Restoration of relationship through spoken communication, because God is literally speaking with humanity again. Yeah. Because the last time we saw God in the garden, he was walking with them in the cool of the evening, the ruach of the evening, the spirit of the evening. So it's, it's already trying to connect you back to like God is reestablishing what happened in the garden. He's reestablishing relationship with humanity in the way that it's supposed to be. So what is actually inside of the ark? Well, there's the bread. Yep. Right. There's Torah. Yep. Right now it's actually represented by the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. right? Tablets ten of words. testimony. Yep, yeah, ten words. And it's not yet happening, but it will come up before we're at, out of this book. But Aaron's staff is going to be in there. Yeah. Right? After it buds. There are two cherubim that are facing each other. So where else have we seen two cherubim facing each other? The entrance of Eden. Yeah. There are two angels that are there, one represented by a sword and another by an angel, right? That are there guarding the entrance to Eden. Mm-hmm. Some of you are going to be like, oh, why too? Like, there's a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into it right now. Otherwise, this is going to be an hour and a half episode. So what's actually happening here? God's reestablishing this connection that he's lost since Eden. He's continuing uh-huh. his story through the people of Israel. Now, you tried to get ahead of me. So let's talk about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Ben, just so you know, this happens often where Ben's like, okay, I'm setting up a context and I'm like, all right, let's talk here. And he's like, no, not yet, not yet. I'm not there yet. Yeah. This happens all the time. If we have points where like A, B, C, D, he's like A, C, B, D, E, F, Z. Exactly. Exactly. That's how you do it. (laughs) That's how you do it. Ben's like, no, that's not how you do that at all. (laughs) So let's talk about Jesus here. So Jesus makes some claims here that we have to understand. So when we're understanding the context of the Ark of the Covenant, we have bread, we have Torah, we have Aaron's staff. Okay. Aaron's staff is soon going to be in there. Okay. Jesus makes a statement saying that he is the bread that came from heaven. Which is not only going to be manna, uh-huh. but also what's in the ark. Yep, which is all, yep. And then statements also made in the beginning of John that he is the word. Mm-hmm. In so the beginning Torah. was the word. He yeah. is Torah made flesh. Mm-hmm. All right. And then there's also the statement made that he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's the high priest in Israel? Aaron. And his staff is represented in the covenant itself. Yeah. So Jesus, in these statements, these are very intentional because he's saying, hey, I recognize the Ark of the Covenant, what is in there. That's a place where God spoke from. And so here I'm going to say that I am the embodiment of that. Yeah, which is crazy because then Jesus says, I'm a representation of the Father. What he says, I say on earth. Yep. Right? So God has been speaking from between the two cherubim, and now the cherubim made flesh, Yeah. right? The Torah made flesh, the bread that came from heaven, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek is now walking and talking among you. Guess what? God is actually there speaking with you. Yes. And it's not an accident. And if you miss that, you're going to miss some really cool stuff that's being alluded to. 
And so like oftentimes when we view these, like we view these as like, oh, well, Jesus saying I'm the bread that came from heaven. And we're like, oh, he's the nourishment. Yes. 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 Absolutely. But he's also alluding back to the fact that he is Torah made flesh. Very rarely does a rabbi waste one analogy. Yes. He uses it to connect to like six different ideas. Yeah. 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 So you got to at least see that moving forward. One of the reasons that we bring these up is because as we go into the New Testament, as we as believers go and walk out our love in context, it's going to be really important that we understand what Jesus is actually representing, right? What part of the story that Jesus is actually walking into. We actually had a email question and I thought it was actually a really good question. Somebody sent us and it's not going to show up in our Q&A. So I wanted to just mention something here because it's connected what we're talking about. They asked, they understood the context part, but what, what heart of love are we hoping to establish mm-hmm. inside of this? Cause they've always viewed the Bible as being written to them. Yeah. Now on a very broad level, I want to establish that that's absolutely true. Yes. The Bible's absolutely written for you. It just wasn't necessarily written to you because yeah. you weren't a turn of the century Jew. Yes. It was, it wasn't written for the Jews in the time of Jesus. It was written for the Jews in the time of Abraham. Uh-huh. Even the Jews in the time of Jesus have to interpret through the Abrahamic lens. Yes. Yeah. Through the mosaic lens, uh-huh. right? Because you got to contextualize the time period. Yeah, absolutely. You do. And the question of how does this like draw us closer into love, understanding the context of scripture, it actually draws us closer to the heart of God. And the heart of God is love. Yeah. What our hope is under uncovering this context is not that it changes what you believe it got God, mm-hmm. but that it makes the nature of God more true to you. Yes. That's our hope. Yeah, and when you start viewing it, and we talked about this a while back on the podcast, but when you start viewing God as a God of love and not a God of anger, mm-hmm. it changes your whole perspective. And Because oftentimes in church, we'll view God as a God of anger in the Old Testament than a God of love in the New Testament, and at which point you have to ask, like, well, where did his nature change? And the answer is his nature didn't change. So if his nature didn't change and he's a God of love in the New Testament, which is fulfillment of the Old Testament, then he has to be a God of love in the Old Testament. Right. Which then if I read something in the Old Testament and I struggle with it, then I need to actually wrestle with that and not just move on without thinking about it. Yes. I need to actually wrestle and say, how does this fit into the knowledge that God is trying to promote love of him and love of your neighbor? Yeah. I just think that is a really cool connection about the speaking from between the covenant. Like I always love it in the Old Testament where it talks about God speaking. Yeah. Um, There's a story in next week's podcast. We're going to be talking about where God does this really cool stuff. Again, it has to do with the division of the spirit, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to get to that. There's a there's just a number of stories and numbers that I love. Yeah. So jumping over to eight and nine, there's a few things that are worth noting here. Okay, say so prepare these lamps. Now this references back to Exodus, where they're supposed to refill the oil and trim the wicks so that um, the lamps never go out. Yeah. So here you have the Lord saying to Moses, "Give Aaron these instructions." And he gives them these instructions to set up the lamps and get them lit. Right. Exactly. The light, lit flame is supposed to be the face of God yeah. in the place, right? Mm-hmm. The presence of God in the place. Um, of course, it's represented by the cloud as well, but the flame is supposed to be like the face of God there. Yeah. Right. And so you always want to keep those running because you don't, you definitely don't want your lamp to run out. Uh-huh. Which incidentally might be important in a story that Jesus tells in the New Testament, which we'll get to at some point. Yeah, so they set up these lamps because now it's time for them to be lit. Yeah. They're getting going. Yeah. And then you get to the dedication or the consecration of the Levites. Yep. Now, in this, you get back to this idea of being holy. Right. Of being set apart. 
if you do any reading about the Levites, you will realize that the Levites are very different than the rest of Israel. Yeah. They're part of Israel, but they are the priests who are supposed to build up priests. Yeah. So the Lord is saying we need to set the Levites apart. Yeah. And not every Levite is a priest. Like some Levites are just involved in the running of the temple. Yeah. And so we need to set them apart. And once again, because their jobs will be to teach the kingdom how to be a kingdom of priests. Yeah. Right. So you have to understand that. You just got to understand that. Yeah. Priest, we're going to, Levites, we're actually going to set you apart. You guys are going to be really weird because you're going to be at the center of our travels all the entire time, yeah. packing up the temple, moving it place to place, uh-huh. teaching us all what it means to put God on display mm-hmm. and to have a restored relationship with God. Yeah. This is going to be your job because we as a nation are supposed to do this. Yeah. And when they struggle to do that, so does the nation. So in the Levites dedication, another thing to note is that it wasn't like, oh, hey, let's just bring the Levites together. We'll talk about what that looks like. No, it actually says, it actually says in chapter eight, verse nine, then assemble the whole community of Israel. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So the dedication of the Levites was like, hey, everybody in this nation show up Mm -hmm. for this because you need to see who these people are that are going to help teach you how to put God's righteousness on display. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. It's not just like, hey, FYI, we sent an email out, let you know these guys are set <laughs> apart, right? Uh, it's, it's There's like, this new ban- bunch called the Levites. They're going to oversee the priests. Yeah. Which is the, the way, four bullet points on what they're going to do. <laughs> I do think it's actually important to note that when, if your church is also setting people aside for ministry, uh-huh. you should show up. Yeah. Even if you're not involved in the- um, Yeah the laying on of hands or whatever is happening uh, at your church. Yeah. But somebody's being set aside for ministry. They're being sent out. Any of those things like show up. You're part of the family. Yeah. This whole idea that we talked about imbuing identity, setting apart for ministry, all these different things. Like mm-hmm. you're also casting your identity with them as you're sending them out to be representatives of Christ to the world. Yeah. Right. Like you, we need to be part of this. There's a reason we're a family. Now I think it's interesting that after they do this, that they then go and celebrate Passover for the second time. Yep. Right. Uh, first time being in Egypt, now they're uh, one year out and they're celebrating Passover again, which is really important because we've talked about in the 10 words, what's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, put no other gods before me. Yeah. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't have any other gods. And if you don't remember that he's the God who brought you out of Egypt, you're probably going to have some other gods. Yeah. So they celebrate Passover before they're about to head out and actually go and do what they're supposed to do, they're reminded of where they come from. Mm-hmm. And they remember who brought them out and and who conquered their gods and who brought them to this place, right? Yeah. And side note, we need to remember where we came from. But not saying live, like, live where you came from. I'm saying you need to remember, though, because you can't accurately articulate the story if you can't remember your past. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. If you cannot articulate how Christ has changed your life, you're not going to be able to articulate how he can change someone else's life. So you need to know your story. Yeah, that's really good. I uh, I think that it's, it's really cool. They celebrate this. The piece that comes after this that I think that we should talk about, mm-hmm. right? And it comes on the back end of chapter 9 and into 10. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts in verse 15, and I'm just going to read this. I want to read 9, 15 through 23. It says, on the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. This is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. 
Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would be set out. Sometimes the cloud only stayed only from evening till morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in the camp and not set out, but when it lifted, they would set out. As the Lord commanded, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's command in accordance with his command through Moses. Mm -hmm. And you hear that, and you're like, yeah, we get it. When the cloud was there, they stayed, and when the cloud moved, they went. If you got it, they wouldn't have to say it so many times. Mm -hmm. Because this is still what God is doing, and we keep trying to move without the cloud. Yeah. And I love the imagery of the cloud and fire. Yeah. Because... The cloud in the day provides shelter from mm-hmm. the heat. The fire at night provides heat mm-hmm. in the cold. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but the desert can get real hot. <laughs> it also can get real cold at night. How many times have we said that? A lot. A lot. Uh, it, the desert can get real hot. It can yeah. also get really cold. Yeah. So you have a cloud during day, the day to cool it down. You have a fire at night to warm it up. Yeah. Right? And so when you step outside of that... Guess what? Your protection from the elements is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And God, what he's doing is he's trying to draw you back, say, no, I'm right here. I want to provide shelter for you. I want to provide warmth for you. And it's not just it's not just the warmth and it's yeah. not just the cooling during the day. It also says that when they would go, it talks about this in Deuteronomy, when they would walk, their shoes wouldn't wear out, their clothes weren't wearing out. They yeah. weren't attacked by various creatures. Like, cause there's a lot of like dangerous things in the desert, scorpions yeah. on the snakes and all those things that we don't like. Mm-hmm. Right. And it says that they were protected from these the entire time that they're roaming because the cloud went with them, yeah. which is once again, going to be very important when we come in to talk about this brown serpent, right? It's a few weeks from now, but just keep that, pin that in the back of your head. When you're protected by the cloud, nothing else can get you. Yeah. You're protected from the cold. You're protected from the heat. You're protected from all the things that would attack you. Yeah. You still have to be in the desert. Yep. And you still have to trust. Yep. <laughs> you're still getting your food each day from heaven and you still got to trust that you're getting led to water. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to say it's like devoid of faith because you absolutely have to walk in faith in the middle of a desert, which I think is probably where people struggle maybe with understanding walking in the blessing of God. You can be incredibly blessed by God and still walk through the middle of chaos. I was thinking the story we talked about a few weeks ago where the people who went to my church and like their kid died in a car crash, right? Yeah. Like they were absolutely blessed by God. Uh Uh-huh. It didn't mean that chaos didn't come to their door. Yeah. It just means in the middle of the chaos, they had a refuge. No, that's so good. I think if there's something we can talk about, chapter 10, they make the silver trumpets and then they actually set out. So they're actually going... So that's what happens in chapter 10, but let's just stop here because I want to stop here and talk about this. Modern church, do we actually stay where God stays and go when God goes, or do we do go and do what we think makes the most sense? My personal experience happens to be the latter in my life, that I tend to, rather than seeking what is God doing, I try to go and figure out how to do for myself. Yeah. 
with that said, it can be really hard to sit still in a desert. Like when God, like there in that passage, it says whether it stayed a day, a month or a year, right? You're going to set up camp for a year in one spot in the middle of the desert. Sometimes that happens in our lives. It can be really hard to stay. We can feel the need of like, we have to move, we have to go. But you might be in that spot where you're like, actually, I need to stay because the Lord hasn't moved yet. We have referenced this before. It is just a, it's just a quality piece of literature written by Henry Blackaby a, a long time ago. And it's mm-hmm. called Experiencing God. It's a study. We're going to link yeah. it again in the show notes. But I want to talk about his seven realities and just a couple of things that he talks about when you're learning to hear and do the will of God, mm-hmm. right? The first reality is this. God is always at work around you. Yeah. Like God's always doing something, right? The second is that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. Yeah. God invites you to become involved with him in his work. Yeah. And God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, and through the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. Yep. God's invitation for you is to work with him, always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. And you come to know God by experience as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. Mm -hmm. Now, these all line up with what's going on in Torah. God speaking. God invites you. Yeah. Uh, You have to choose. Are you going to make major adjustments? Are you going to stay in Egypt where you're in slavery, but you know what's going to happen? Or are you going to walk into the desert where you don't have any bread or water? Yeah. Are you going to follow God? and choose to have him be your God, or are you going to stay at the base of Sinai? Yeah. Are you going to follow the cloud, or are you going to see what God is doing? Yeah. Because he's always working around you. Is he work where you are, or is he moving on? Yeah. That's the important thing. Yeah. And are you with him when he's doing that? I've heard it said, people will make the statement, they're like, well, don't just stand there, do something. And sometimes that is absolutely what you should do. Do uh-huh. something. Other times, though, God is saying, don't just do something, stand there, right? And it depends on what God is saying. Mm-hmm. You hit the nail on the head, Spencer. You said during the day, the cloud provides shade. Yeah. But during the night, it provides warmth. So what that means is that the way that God interacts with you isn't always going to be the same, even though his presence is. Yeah. And sometimes it's going to warm you, and sometimes it's going to cool you. Sometimes it's warmth when you're resting, uh-huh. And sometimes it's cooling when you're moving. Yeah. Well, what does God want me to do? It's going to depend on what he's doing. Yeah. So what we should be doing is looking for Jesus and then adjusting to that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What is Jesus doing? Where is he calling you? Where is he in your life? And where is he moving you from? Where is he moving you to? Because he's doing all of that all the time. The best thing we can ever teach people to do is see Jesus and follow after him. Yep. Right? He'll take care of the rest. He'll take care of the rest. Yeah. That's probably a good place for us to cut it for today. Uh, We've enjoyed having you guys here and having this conversation. Like, seriously, look for God moving. Look for Jesus moving. Follow after him. Next week, we're going to have Pastor Nick on as a special guest, and we'll be talking about some of the other things going on in the next portion of Numbers. We can be found on so many places now. Amazon, Spotify, Apple. YouTube. Yeah. TikTok. Instagram. Instagram, Facebook. And just forewarning, just be prepared to buckle up a little bit Mm -hmm. in the next few episodes because we're getting into some very fun stories. Yeah. 
Thanks for joining us, and until next time. That's a wrap for today's episode. We want to extend a heartfelt thank you for tuning in and spending your valuable time with us. We hope that you found today's conversation insightful and that you take something meaningful from it. If you have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at loveincontext@gmail.com, at gmail.com and we will be sure to get back to you. Remember, you can always engage with our content on all your favorite listening platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, and more. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Love and Context on Instagram and Facebook for updates. Everything I say is 100% coherent. <laughs> uh, you sound pretty excited. <laughs> You're like... <laughs> I'm super excited that you're here. That is my excited voice. Is it? Let me do that whole thing again. Future Ben, I'm sorry you had to cut all this. It was written to the Jews in the time of Abraham. You be quiet. (laughs) I don't know how many belches I had to edit out. It was like 50. It's what it felt like. That's impressive. It's really impressive.